you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animated chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary and add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, Hey everybody and welcome to the Fanboy Planet podcast. I'm Derek McCaw, editor-in-chief of fanboyplanet.com and we have a special guest today which I think uh, everybody uh, who's watching is aware. So let's bring in the entire group which is uh, of course we have podcast producer and no man's role model. Hi, Rick Redsider. And uh, our special guest today in the center which we just figured out how to do. <laughs> Hi, Win Scott Eckert. Wynn, it's so good to have you here, yes. And uh, so before we get into talking with Wynn about all things, uh, I say everything's connected, and it turns out Meteor House says the same thing about you too. Uh, that, uh, that uh, of course, if anything we talk about on today's podcast uh, that you want to own for your very own, you can't find your local brick and mortar store, of course, things from when you can be ordered from Meteor House, Prep, Meteor House Press, we'll have a link to that uh, showing shortly, as well as EdgarRiceBurrows.com. And of course, you can find it at Amazon. We may have links as well for bookshop.org. So, uh, you know, be sure to support any one of those ways, although I know that Meteor House Press would very much appreciate a good record for them, so we'll try. All right. Uh, and of course, if you want to join the conversation, both of you are watching this live and you have a little commentary blog going on the side, so you can write in questions and, and we'll take, take them throughout the entire broadcast, as well as, of course, you can follow it at editor at fanboyplanet.com. If you have questions, comments, compliments, criticism, commentary, you just send it in later. We'll be happy to answer on a later podcast, if not today. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fanboyplanet. That's a lot, and uh, and I hear that incredibly huge cat purring through this whole thing. That's the story I'm going with. That's what we have. Is there is a 30 foot cat outside of my office right now? Oh my god! Keep breathing. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's a win. Welcome. You have a book that just came out a few months ago, Tarzan Battle for Pellucidar, part of the Swords of Eternity arc with the Edgar Rice Burroughs universe. You've got a book coming out near uh, later this year called uh, The Monster on Hold, and I can't even begin to go through your entire bibliography. You know, there's just a, a lot, and you're everywhere. It seems like I, I look at stuff. So I want to talk about your origins, because we sure. talked with you at Comic-Con two or three years ago, and I don't think we really got into what is it about these characters? You've written Tarzan, you've written a variation on Doc Savage, and many others. What is it about them that stuck with you as a kid? Well, it, it all it all really comes back, uh, and I, I I think there's a quote out there: anything from the '70s, blame on Philip Jose Farmer, and uh, and I blame it on on Philip Jose Farmer. Uh, when I was about nine years old. Uh, a family friend gave me uh, a big stack of Doc Savage Bantam 
reprints and uh, and a copy along with it of Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life, uh, which was Philip Jose Farmer's mock biography of Doc Savage. It was actually uh, the accompaniment to his earlier book, Tarzan Alive, which was uh, written, you know, very straight as a as a biography of, of Lord Greystoke. And I spent, we were driving across country back from these family friends that they gave it. And I just read these Doc Savages in the backseat of the car, along with Farmer's biography going back and forth. And as you probably know, in Farmer's biography of, of Doc Savage, there's, there are these end papers where he connects Doc and puts Doc into a world, a fictional world with a lot of other uh, fictional characters. And for some reason that just really, it was like lightning striking in my brain. And it made me go out and look for all of these other characters and read their books too, including Tarzan. Uh, uh, so I actually read the Doc Savage book. I got into Doc Savage before I got into Tarzan. It made me look for Tarzan. It made me look for James Bond. It made me look for the Sax Romer books and, and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, I can't really explain it more than that. It just, it was kind of like the, a switch clicked in me. And that was, I just loved thinking about how these characters could interact together, potentially interact in, in a shared world. Uh, and, you know, it just kind of took off from there. Yeah. I, I think we, like we have similar origin stories. My for, my way in was the devil Genghis and then his apocalyptic life because somebody yeah. pointed that out to me at the, at the library. Uh, so yeah, you and then became a writer and got hooked up with the with with these franchises, if you will, or these universes. So, as, as I, as I uh, just mentioned, of course, you did have a few months ago Tarzan Battle for Pellucidar, and so you know I have this really good good book we reviewed on Fanboy Planet, and we talked with uh, Kristen Carey about the Carson Venus one. So when you're a writer in the super arc, as they're calling it. Towards maternity, you know, what are the what are the challenges? You're one of several authors in this great epic, you know, the, this grand tapestry, if you will. Um, you know, what are the challenges and the tools to keep it all straight so you're not contradicting with somebody else? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, uh, and I do this for my own books as well, too. Even if I'm not involved in a super arc with other writers or keeping something straight. Uh, and I also, again, I got to blame this on Phil Farmer somehow, but he, he kind of put this in my brain. I create fictional chronologies of the characters uh, or the worlds in order to keep everything straight. So I know the history of what happened when uh, and, and can then, you know, kind of refer back to it. And, and so that was, that was kind of my role with uh, the writers working on the super arc. Uh, I made a comprehensive uh, chronology of the Edgar Rice Burroughs universe, particularly the intertwining series. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I've added every single standalone Burroughs book yet to to the chronology, although it wouldn't really be that tough to do so when I find I, I do it. Yeah, you're going to do that when you have time. Sure, sure. I'll keep it's it's always it's a living document. It's a and it's always a work in progress. And if you find a new nugget of information. Uh, absolutely added in. Or if I sit in a, you know what, I haven't read this standalone uh, Burroughs book in a long time. I don't know. I'm just picking one up. Like The Cave Girl, right? It's just standalone. You know, um, when 
if I read it again, I'll make sure that I'm, you know, taking a few notes or trying to figure out when it would, when it would fit in. And, and, and the, the, one of the important pieces of that is to always make sure it takes place before Burroughs put pen to paper and started writing it because it's like in order for Burroughs to know about it, he, you know, it had to have happened first. Right. So that's sort of, that's one of, that's how I approach fictional chronologies. Uh, you know, just like Sherlock Holmes, W.S. Baringold did one of the first chronologies in his biography, um, Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street. And there's a lot of Holmes chronologies out there, a ton. But his was, you know, one of the first and one that I go back to a lot. And it all comes down, you know, that Watson had to have experienced the events before he could actually actually set them down. So you can't set down future events unless there's some kind of science fictional reason for it, for you knowing knowing the future event. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's really crucial when you look at the way, when someone looks at the way that Battle for Pellucidar was written, you are jumping around. Your, your novel takes place before the Carson of Venus novel happens. And then there's a short story or a novella in the back that takes place somewhere around there too. With You've got Victory Harbin at 12, uh, we had an adult victory Harbin previously. You're jumping around. Not only that, you and and I love this because I, it, it totally feeds feeds my. I've got to read these. Is you've got footnotes to so many other adventures in that, um, you know. And and so that's you know, my question is, what you know, were you forced to reread or or just challenged to reread the Tarzan novels? So you're like, yeah, I've got this. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was forced to. I mean. <laughs> You know, it was exactly. It was a it was a pleasure to do so, honestly. Um, and and that w- that's my way preparation of of getting in the world, getting my head in in the world, right? Or in the worlds um, is to reread as many of them as I possibly can, uh, and just you know, kind of just ab- absorb that and and pour all of that into my brain. Let it percolate, uh, and and then see what comes out. So for sure, I, I mean, I read, uh, I reread the Pellucidar series twice before starting starting writing um, the Tarzan series. I reread once, and I re- all you know, twenty four, twenty six, however however many you want to count them. Um, I count it as twenty six because I include Tarzan and the Tarzan Twins book, and I include. Um, Tarzan, The Lost Adventure, um, which was um, completed by Joe Lansdale. Um, so to me, the Tarzan series, the, the core Tarzan series uh, is, is 26. Um, and yeah, uh, and I was able to, to pick, you know, pieces and, and nuggets out of that and go, ooh, I can, I can use this. And, you know, you make a lot of notes and then you actually, you don't use all of them. Sometimes I'm like, you know what, I can't, that would feel forced. So I'm not gonna, yeah. not gonna try to use this piece, but this puzzle piece works perfectly, uh, and uh, I'm gonna slot it in right here. Yeah. So let, let's have the, the serious conversation of you're getting into the the head of, well, not the head of, but you know, you're you're writing Tarzan, a character created in the first half of the of the 20th century. Uh, most of his of Burroughs' work is the 20s and 30s. Times have changed, attitudes yeah. have changed. What were the challenges for you in writing a Tarzan that's accessible 
in particular to an audience that maybe only knows movies or maybe only knows TV shows or cartoons or something? Yeah, you know, uh, that's a that's a really it's it's tough to articulate. It wasn't as actually hard to do, but it's a little bit harder, I think, to articulate. But but my approach was that there is so much good in Tarzan still, even if you go back and read some of those books and, and in some of those books, there is absolutely um, cringeworthy uh, or worse, offensive terminology, words. And, and my approach was, uh, let's not turn anyone off. Right. I mean, why would I write a book that's coming out in 2020 and write it in such a way that turns off huge percentages of potential demographics? Now, will we ever reach those demographics anyway? I don't know. Um, but but why set myself up to actually actively offend them and turn them off? Right. Um, there's no, there's no need for that. Um, that's not what Tarzan is. That's not what defines Tarzan in my, in my, in my view. So let's take, uh, what was excellent about Tarzan, his heroic character, um, his, uh, love of nature, his love of animals, uh, and, and let's focus on those as well as his, his desire to, uh, to protect the people that he loves. Uh, and, you know, he's a hero. Uh, let's, let's play up the heroic aspects. And again, I don't think that, you know, there were very many instances in the original Tarzan books where Tarzan wasn't a hero, but there were other characters and tropes and stereotypes involved that are just aren't necessary in order to support a Tarzan novel uh, in this day and age. And there are other... Uh, other things that can be incorporated that could could constitute an entree point into Tarzan fandom. Um, there's there have uh, there Burroughs already had heroic women in his books, but could we do more with that? Jane was the lead um, for all intents and purposes in Tarzan's quest. Um, she played a very large part in that book, and it's one of my favorite books. Could we see more of that? And you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pursue that by making Jane, but I pursued that by uh, making another female character uh, prominent in the book. Could we do more of that? Um, there's no reason that we need to fall back and play to the old stereotypes. That will never change the prior books, uh, but the world has evolved. Tarzan is immortal. He's a, he's alive in 2021. I can't help but imagine that he was sophisticated enough and intelligent enough uh, to evolve along with the evolving world that he lives in. Yeah, there's a, an end piece uh, note at the end of your novel. I don't think it was something that, that, that you had written, but from his point of view, and in my memory, it's been a while, I've been a few months, um, that even says like he, his attitude towards Laziri, it's time for independence. Um, and and it's past time, you know. Yeah. And, and it's that actually it was still, me. That, that was me. You. But, then, yeah. then kudos <laughs> to you, sir. You know, no, I, I bought just because there were so many 
different notes and forwards and so forth, sure. and, you know, across all these. And I did just get, you know, like Victory Harbin kind of rewrites a little bit about, not a rewrites, but gives you a different view of the Mahar in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in her, from her point of view, it's like that maybe, you know, this is the thing now is saying just because Burroughs wrote it this way, that doesn't mean it's actually the way it 100% happened. Just like, you know, in, I'll go back to apocalyptic life and let us get into Philip Jose Farmer, who talks about that, like, you know, that, that, Doc Savage himself, or whatever his real name was, uh, is uh, you know was complaining about the exaggerations. Although it helped build his reputation, you know. Sure. So you know, th there's always that subjective narrator that we can that we can lean back on. So right, and and I don't mean, and by that, with uh, particularly with with the Mayhars, um, the big bad of Pellucidar, you know, I don't mean to. to to go back and, and rewrite um, Burroughs, uh, 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 and no one no one could. Um, it's just as you said, it's a different character's point of view. You know, maybe, and the, that point of view is maybe there's an alternative to war. That's it, right? I mean, what is so horrible about about that? You know, maybe there's an alternative to war. Can we just stop and talk about this for a minute? That's it. That's all that happened. And, you know, it's, I don't want to give too much, too much attention to the, to the 1% reactions, you know, yeah. because, because yeah. it, because it's, it's 1%, but it's like some, you know, a few reviews, that brat, Brit Victory Harbin, you know, just give me Tarzan killing things. I'm like, well, you know, if that's how you, if that's what you took away from the original Burroughs books is, I'm a man and I like to see Tarzan, a man killing things. Okay. That's what you took away. That's not what I took away from the Tarzan books. I mean, you know, there's Star Trek fans who so clearly seem to not understand the mission of the Federation. Right. You know? <laughs> right. I won't name any, you know, politicians, but there are. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, um, right. so let's get into it. Empire was bad, by the way, just, you know, they were, but they not, made the not, space we're not the good guys. The time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about Philip Jose, Jose Farmer because his work is obviously this the shadow. I mean, Edgar S. Burroughs starts it, but then, but but then Farmer comes along. <laughs> what did you say about the seventies? Like it, it's all Farmer's fault. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> so it's true. I I saw that so much too. Um, so you know you're reading his work and 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 I think you talked about the I don't think we actually named it the Wold Newton universe. Yeah, which, he started the Wold Newton family, which was like the genetic family that he kind of did the family tree on and gave the history of in the back papers of of Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage, um, and then uh, and then in the late '90s I started uh, a website called the Wold Newton Universe. Um, which is still out there, an extremely primitive website, and I have not updated it in, in a long time because I'm busy writing. Um, so it's sort of like almost a, a, a going back and looking at a slice of, of history it, now. It's such, a strange, it's such a strange name that it's probably worth explaining what Wold Newton is. Yeah, and the that origin. Ten words or less, go. Okay, sure. So in, I don't know, 10 words or less, but and I just no, used that. Uh, 1795, December, 1795, December 13th, 
a meteor comes down, hits a very small, hits in a farm field in a very small hamlet uh, in uh, Yorkshire, England, called Wold Newton. That's the name of the village. This is a real event. It's historical. It happened. Farmer didn't make this up. Uh, and actually he didn't make any of it up cause it's all true, but, um, uh, but there were, there were, um, married couples and two carriages nearby and they were affected by the ionization, uh, of the radiation of the meteor coming down. Basically think of it as, you know, beneficial mutations, right? So they were affected in a beneficial way. Um, and then they also, there was a lot of intermarriage. So, um, and there were also people who were already heroic who were there, never mind being exposed to the meteor, right? Um, Sir Percy Blakeney, um, the Scarlet Pimpernel, he was there. And again, he was, he didn't become the Scarlet Pimpernel because of the Wold Newton meteor. He was already the Scarlet Pimpernel, okay? Uh, and other, and other literary characters, um, Fitzwilliam Darcy and, and his wife, Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice and a whole... So they're there and they get affected and they intermarry and their descendants become um, heroes and villains of, of literature, um, resulting in Doc Savage, resulting in Tarzan, Fu Manchu, James Bond, uh, and, and so many others I, I, I can't name. And again, these were, these were in Phil's Wold Newton family, never mind other folks like myself who have come along and written speculative articles to make some additions uh, to the family or the universe via crossovers. And Far uh, Farmer actually did the genealogy of all this with charts and, and, and who married who. Absolutely. And, 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 and here's the crux of it, Rick, because of those charts, those genealogical charts and those chronologies that he did, he did the chronological research to see if, such and such character was available within the bounds of that character's canon was available to be married or to, you know, hook up with a character from a completely different canon. So he, he, he wasn't violating some other author's canon in that respect. He was very respectful of it because he didn't just say like, oh, well, Victor Frankenstein can meet Sherlock Holmes and Watson. No, he would never do that because he knew they were from different times. The, you know, the original Frankenstein, uh, that was in the 1790s. And Holmes and Watson are in the 1880s and 1890s, right? But you see these pastiches and, yeah. and, yeah. and they're chronologically impossible, right? If you adhere to the original books. He adhered to the original books. Then he created this construct you know, that was obviously in addition to or outside of the original books, but he always started with the originals and I took that lesson. And so when you see this criticism um, online and in some of the toxic fandom where they haven't really read and understood what's going on, oh, it violates canon, they didn't know what they were doing. No, we, are, we do very deep research to make sure that we've got the chronologies right and we read the original books painstakingly before we, you know, construct our articles and put and put them out there. Now, is there other speculative stuff out there that goes really wild? Of course. But, you know, the core group of us who have been doing this for over 20 years are extremely um, research driven about it. Yeah. Leave extraordinary gentlemen. 
film-wise, although yeah. the top player actually fits better than you think. Um, Penny Dreadful series that was uh, on Showtime, you know, very fun. But as you point out, that did bother me. Frankenstein could not be, uh, a, you know, right. a contemporary right. of these other characters. Right. But yeah. So and I love, it, by the way, I love Penny Dreadful. I I love that show. It's they're doing something different with it. They're uh, even more mix and match without regard to the original, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah, it was, it was it was fun. It was fan fiction, but isn't it all? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so when you said that you started that Walt Newton website, and I realized I have this dim memory of encountering that in the early days of the web, and being so excited, there were other people that cared. Like yeah. I think long before I even met met Rick, and you know, and you said it's all real. I can remember a couple, more than one librarian patronizingly nodding when I'd say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I want to someday go and find the Fortress of Solitude. Nine right. day, very excited by by Farmer telling me it was real. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you go from, or is this concurrent, running this website originally and then becoming this compatriot of uh of Philip Jose Farmer and becoming now you're called the official legacy author for at least one of his series uh, from his notes, I would assume, or half written outline. So those kinds of things for Patricia yeah. Wildman and more. Right. So, so Farmer, Phil became aware of, of me from the site because Mike Croteau, who's my, one of my partners in, in Meteor House had been doing, uh, had been starting a fanzine called Farmer File, and we did 15 issues of it. Chris Carey was the lead editor for the first 10 issues, and then Paul Spiteri and I uh, did, the, did the edits for the final five issues, and this was back in the mid-2000s. So uh, concurrently with that, Jean-Marc Lafissier, Lafissier, <laughs> sorry, I do not speak French, um, of uh, started uh, a press called Black Coat Press, and he started putting out a yearly anthology called Tales of the Shadowmen, which was meant to take um, you know many different characters from public domain and mash them up in crossovers with a focus on French and frankly non-American characters, which re you know required some learning and some lifting there. Yeah. Um, and some of them we sort of you know, remade a little bit like Doc Ardan was sort of a Doc Savage continuation and stuff like that. So that was my dipping the toe into writing fiction. That was my first fiction. And I, you know, very much appreciate Jean-Marc giving me that opportunity. Almost concurrently with that, I started doing a bunch of articles for the Farmer File fanzine. And that ended up with an invitation, like out of the blue from Mike, uh, Mike Croteau. He called me up uh, and it was uh, 2000. I think it was 2005, uh, and he said, hey, um, I'm going to drive up to Peoria. He was in Atlanta. He still is. I was going to drive up to Peoria and look through Phil's files again over Fourth of July, long Fourth of July weekend. You want to come? And I was like, it was two weeks. Like, I'm like, sure. <laughs> so so um, I got my ticket and I got on a plane. I didn't even know where I was going to sleep. Um, got on a plane, went to Peoria, went to Phil and Betty's house with Mike, got introduced. Um, she made, you know, like orange marshmallow jello or something like that, something very Midwestern and, and very <laughs> nice and very, you know, very welcoming. And uh, 
And, uh, and then they said, well, you can look at the files too. I mean, they weren't, I wasn't quite, you know, sure how that was going to go because they knew Mike and they trusted Mike, but I hadn't been there yet. I, that was my first introduction. I was like, yeah, you can go down and you can go down and look at the files. And then they said, well, you know, where, where are you staying? And I'm like, I'm going to, you know, get a hotel or something. Oh no, no, you have to stay here. So, um, you know, I mean, never met them before stayed in Phil and Betty's farmer, Phil and Betty Farmer's basement guest room. Um, and Mike and I, yeah, the magic filing cabinet, which is what we call it now, all of his files, they were in another unfinished part of the basement, and then the guest room was right there. So we just had, you know, perfect. I, I, I think we stayed up until, I don't know, one or two, you know. I was going to ask, were you able to sleep? Or were you just going uh, almost not, almost not. Um, and by that time, I was writing fiction. I was a year or two into writing fiction and uh, with with Jean-Marc and uh, and going through the filing cabinet. And I pulled out this this file and it said Pemberley House. And like, Pemberley House, this has got to be related to Wold Newton. And I'll explain why for your viewers. Right. Remember, we can go back and I said at the Wold Newton Meteor event, Fitzwilliam Darcy and his wife, Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice were there, right? Well, his estate, Darcy's estate is Pemberley House, okay? Right, right. So I pull out this, 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 this folder with Pemberley House and there's a manuscript in it, a manuscript of, of some chapters, I'm not going to say how many, and, and an outline. And I'm like, none of us knew, nobody knew this existed. It was, I mean, for instance, with Monster on Hold, which we'll talk about soon, yeah. we knew that existed, because Phil talked about it at 1983 World Fantasy. He read a chapter from it and he described kind of in a verbal outline format. So that was sort of a lost farmer book that people knew about and had always wanted him to finish. This one, he never mentioned it in an interview and it was nothing. It was like, what is this? Anyway, that turned into the evil in Pemberley House. Phil was done writing by that point in time. He had retired from writing and we talked it over over several years uh, uh, of, you know, I, I came back a year later, I created a genealogy based on the characters in Pemberley house and how it interacted with his existing Wold Newton genealogy. And I did all this legwork, you know, in hopes of getting his buy-in, uh, for permission to, to finish it. Uh, I shared with him manuscript process, uh, manuscript in progress as, as I wrote it, the chapters based on his outline and uh, he gave the approval and, and we had the evil in Pemberley house. Um, so that's very long winded, more than 10 words, but that's, that's how I got into the, there you go, Rick. There you yes, go. Yes. <laughs> on the shelf behind me. Yes. That's how I got into the, that's, that's really how I got into to writing the fiction. Um, I haven't really looked back. And you, and you wrote a second book. Was it also uh, for, for Patricia Wildman? And yes. The, the title is eluding me at the moment. Scarlet, Scarlet Jaguar. Yes, I knew that Rick had that as well. You know, he's got this stack, and and I swear, it probably is there all the time. It's not just <laughs> here. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, stuff away. But the Scarlet Jaguar, is that, you know, was that solo, or were you still... That was solo. That yeah. was solo. Uh, in the back of... Uh, Bantam's Doc Savage Omnibus 13, the last omnibus of Doc Savage books printed by, by Bantam, Phil Farmer did the afterward. And he had already had Escape from Loki out by that point in time, the first, 
the first Doc Savage or, you know, Doc Savage mm-hmm. begins. Um, and he had written about other books, other titles that he would like to write in the series. And there were very short, not a lot of information, you know, and there were, he would, in the afterward, there was a title and then it would be like, you know, Doc fights X, Y, and Z and that's it. So there wasn't, and one of the titles was the Crimson Jaguar. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm not going to steal that title because maybe someday people, maybe someday we'll find Phil's notes for the Crimson Jaguar, right? Because every time we go back to the My- magic filing cabinet, we seem to find more. That's why we call it magic. Um, so I don't want to like write a book called the Crimson Jaguar and then have us find the notes for, for Phil's. So I, yeah, in an homage to his title, I called this one the Scarlet Jaguar. And now you have him because Patricia Wildman is is based on kind of his the apocalyptic life, but also Phil Jose Farmer wrote this parallel series. Rick, hold them up because I know you have them. So I just want to you know say uh, a feast it's unknown, close. the Mad Goblin, and the Lord of the Trees. Yes. And that's where it's coming to you. Yeah, Rick's going to hold up Feast Unknown, uh, you know, which has the meat. Yes, there's that ace double. Go ahead, flip yeah. it over. Yes, yes. Yeah. With Gray Morrow covers, right? Right, and, right. Uh, so, oh, and there's more. Uh, there <laughs> and I don't know. You probably have, have paintings, too. Um, but anyway, that, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. Uh, anyway. So you got those parallel series, which nothing uh, new had really come out for a long time. And you've got this coming now, the continuation of The Secrets of the Nine, which is his parallel explanation. Do recommend to anybody uh, who's interested to read his books first. But I was so excited when I saw yours because that's always been this thing of like, I love this idea of a little more raw, honest, not necessarily for kids, not that necessarily Doc Savage and Tarzan were all the time. I guess they were in the 30s, you know, in 40s. But but now you go, no, that's not really children's literature. But but this this was a little more before. <laughs> Feast Unknown, I think, was originally. Uh, didn't you say, Rick, it was from like an adult press? It was published yes. by an adult publisher who specialized in uh, slightly more uh, graphic. Uh, yeah, and I think my copy was a Playboy Press edition. Right. I was, you know, at a clean, well-lighted place for books, which I totally missed that the bookstore. But you know that. Um, so you're continuing that. You've got the monster on hold. Let's talk. What can you say about the monster on hold? Sure. So, um, and again, for your viewers, I'll kind of set the stage a little bit with the first three books. Um, like you said, these are different versions of Doc Savage and Tarzan, called Doc Caliban and Lord Grunneth. Uh, and um, as Rick mentioned, the adult publisher for the first book, A Feast Unknown, was Essex House. Uh, And, you know, there were a lot of sci-fi writers back in the 60s adding to, um, you know, filling filling their bank accounts by writing for some of these adult publishers. They just didn't do it under their own names. Uh, And when they approached Phil, Phil was like, yeah, but I'll just do this, but I'll just do it for myself. And maybe he shot himself in the foot career-wise. I don't know. I mean, he's... Got, he's taken a lot of grief for that book and for Image of the Beast, which was another one that was very graphic. Um, Image of the Beast and, and, and Blown. But I think he very intentionally did it. Um, I mean, he's almost, he was almost the first of the deconstructionists. And if you think about, uh, you know, Alan Moore and Watchmen and 
and all of the kind of deconstructing superheroes and like what the question is, what would they be like if it was really the real world and they were really real people? How would they behave? How would the world react? Um, but then he kind of took it, he took it a step further with Feast Unknown. And I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly graphic and very sexualized and that turns off a lot of people. And I get it. I mean, you know, it doesn't turn me off. Um, I think it's hilarious because I think he's actually having a bit of a joke on us. He's, it's so hyper violent and so hyper sexualized that you almost, you can't take it anything, but he's just taking the pulp it's ridiculous. To, the, to the ridiculous extremes and seeing how far he can push it. And I think a lot of people who, who get highly offended of that don't just, they just don't, they don't see it from that perspective. Um, uh, and and then there's also a bit of well he must have just hated these characters because because he did that and I'm just like you you so don't understand he loved he loved these characters but he was also so intelligent and so creative that he wanted to try his own thing with them and the 60s were all about experimentation and he was experimenting I have to, I have to add, add to that that when I first saw this book. In in uh, I think it was a B Dalton booksellers. I looked at it and I was I was in there usually haunting the shelves for the new Doc Savage books. Yeah. So I'd come across this and it's got the wavy lines and I'm like, right. wow, that guy's just totally ripping off Doc Savage. Right. And on top of that, it's like and Tarzan too. And at that time, I didn't care about Tarzan, but it's like Doc Savage. That's that's my hero. That's sacred. And I right. I purposely did not pick up the book because of that. I was yeah. Offended. Yeah. Yeah. See, but you grew, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was eight. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Some people are still having that eight year old reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so they're no longer eight. <laughs> no, no. It's been um, a long time since eight. It doesn't erase. It doesn't erase anything about the original Doc Savages, right? Those still exist. They're still there. And I love them, but I love both. Right. I love you can have both. Um, my buddy Chuck, um, I know you probably know him online. Chuck, Chuck Loridans. He says um, right from A Feast Unknown, the title, it's a feast. Right. Take what you want. It's all there. None of it. It's all good. Take what you want. Don't eat. Don't eat that if you don't want that part. Right. But don't ruin it for the rest of us who like oysters. Right. I mean, you should know that these books are not that's true. Uh, the adult style that Feast right. of Known is. They are direct yeah. sequels to it. Yes. But they are not written with the graphic uh, sexuality and over the top uh, violence that these are. This is a standard Doc Savage, uh, you yeah. know, mile a minute uh, action right. story. But if right. I remember rightly, it, uh, it is like a sequel to A Feast Unknown. And so, therefore, you're carrying forward. Let's talk about your book, The Monster sure. on Hold, which then is sure. the next under a title now called Secrets of the Nine. Secrets of the Nine. So the three books are all about these two Doc and Tarzan analogs fighting um, this cabal called the Nine of Immortals. And they have this immortality elixir, and they've actually been running things on the planet for anywhere from about 30,000 to 50,000 years. That's how good this elixir is, uh, this immortality elixir. And uh, in the beginning, both Lord Gruneth and Doc Caliban are, are candidates so, you know, they're, they have fealty to the nine and they do the nine's bidding. 
um, in exchange for the elixir. And the books are all about, you know, sort of these heroes discovering or coming to the to the self-awareness realization that they, they should not be doing this. So their heroic nature overcomes. Uh, and then the, the rest of the books, the, the second and the third book, are about their ongoing fight. Uh, to to basically kill members of the nine or people the candidate the other candidates who work for the nine all the while they're being hunted all over the world um, because the nine are everywhere uh, and and so that's that's the first three books um, the fourth book which I'm continuing from farmers uh, written prose and outline will jump forward in time a little bit and it, it is it is just a doc Callan. Caliban book. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I will not be able to resist dropping in a hint about what Lord Gruneth is doing or where he is, you know, a little tantalizing hint, but this is a Doc Caliban book. Uh, and in this book, we learn that, uh, that even the nine, uh, there are even entities even more powerful than the nine. And maybe the nine are even sort of somewhat controlled by uh, by entities or an entity, and when I say entity, I mean co- cosmic entities, unknowable entities, entities that might send you, if you were to descend deep into caverns in New England, might send you gibbering with fear. And so, so Doc Caliban, um, you know, kind of becomes aware, and we'll see through the novel how he becomes aware because this cosmic entity is sort of tapping into him and, and causing him to have nightmares and visions uh, and what is reality and what is not reality. And eventually uh, through the course of the adventure, and this isn't a spoiler, um, he's going to decide that he needs to go back to these caverns uh, in New England that he may, that they go very, very deep, miles deep. Uh, and he descended to a certain point in these caverns way back in 1948. It's now 1984 uh, in this novel, but back in 1948, he had this unexplainable, uh, inexplicable adventure. And he went down into these caves and there were uh, many strange things that happened in this, in this adventure that he never really could explain. Was it the devil? Um, that some people said it was the devil and Satan and he doesn't buy that. Uh, but what, but what was it? And we're going to, we're going to learn. Uh, in this book, uh, so, what would happen? So you're connected to actually me on Facebook months ago with this thing. Yeah, um, it's actually in a way also the sequel to that last Doc Savage official novel from Kenneth Robson, from right. Street and Smith Publishers, up from the Earth Center. Up from Earth Center. That's right. That's right. And I want to make clear to all of the Doc Savage fans watching this: this is not the official sequel. Uh, this is not a Doc Savage, Condé Nast approved sequel to Up From Earth Center. Uh, it's a Doc Caliban. If if Doc Caliban also in his universe went down into those caverns and had sort of that kind of parallel adventure that Doc Savage had, what would be the explanation for that? So it's it's farmers. It, it's a very farmer esque explanation. Uh, or resolution to to the mysteries in that official Doc Savage novel. So you know, 
for anyone who is such a pure Doc Savage aficionado that they're not interested in Doc Caliban, that's fine. This will not ruin this for them. They can come up with their own Doc Savage um, official-oriented explanations, although really the only official one will ever be if Will Murray ever you know, gets the license back and, and writes, writes an official sequel you know, that's Doc Savage-oriented, or if someone else you know, other than Will Mm-hmm. Um, has that honor to actually write an official Doc Savage. This is not official. Um, it's it's Farmer's take on it, just like the Mad Goblin and Lord of the Trees, where Farmer's take on on those characters. And you can read on MeteorHousePress.com. Yes. Yep, MeteorHousePress.com. We uh, we have two editions. Uh, we're going to have a limited edition hardcover. Uh, and the cover for that has already been released. It's a wraparound cover by Mark Wheatley. Uh, to this point, we've only released the front of that, so we haven't released the full wraparound yet. Uh, Mark has also done some interiors for us. Uh, if you're not familiar, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with Mark Wheatley, but um, but Mark did our cover for Meteor House's edition of uh, Farmer's Tarzan and Dark Heart of Time. He's done a, tar- a ton of uh, burrows, as well as Lovecraftian mythos work and then a whole host of other work, like great comic book work like Frankenstein Mobster. Um, I love that. Which I heard is... is, is no, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I know, Mark, uh, I, think, so, I think we shared a booth with him uh, at yeah. Comic-Con one year because of uh, Bill cool. and Ghost Tales from the Grave. So, cool. um, yeah. Yeah, yeah Mark so Mark well. is a great guy. He's done a great cover for us um, for the limited edition hardcover um, that will be signed by all, all contributors, including the artists. And then we've got Doug Klauba doing, uh, doing the soft cover cover. We don't have that one uh, available. Uh, we haven't shown that one yet. Uh, and, and again, um, you know, I've seen the preliminary sketches from Doug, uh, and it's going to be magnificent. So, uh, so yeah. When you're writing uh, as a, a former title, which is in some ways a knock, not a knockoff, but a pair, uh, an homage yeah, to sure. Burroughs and or Robeson. Do you put your voice, try and put your voice into any particular writer? Um, the mind of like, are you writing like you think Farmer would write this or writing as you think Burroughs might write this or Farmer writing as Burroughs yeah. might have written this? How, yeah. how, what's your thought on that? That's a great question. So when I did Evil in Pemberley House, because it was a continuation um, from his prose, and we didn't change his prose, except I think I had to change like a date or something in order to make some things sync up. Um, But we didn't change his prose. Then I I did, I wouldn't say it was fully conscious. It was was a semi-conscious attempt to, to mirror and sync up with his prose, um, if that makes sense. I didn't, mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't think that I tried to slavishly imitate it, um, but I did try to make it as smooth as possible. And Farmer, I've been reading him so long. He's just, he's, he's part of uh, the way he writes and phrases things and his beats and his patterns. Um, I think they're just in me 
and I'm, I would never say that I, I am as good as a writer him or that I write like him or it's just automatic and I'm just like him. That's not what I'm saying. But there are certain beats and patterns and word choices that I think are just unavoidably in, in me because I've been reading him for so long and for just so frequently. Um, and, and so that was that I tried to tap into that even a little bit more with Pemberley house. Um, and I'll try that again with monster. Um, because again, it's got a good chunk of his prose in it. Uh, and, and so I want it to be smooth for the reader with Burroughs. I did not try to do that. Um, I did not try to write like Burroughs. I did not try to duplicate his prose. However, I he did have he does Burroughs has other patterns different from different from beats and actually writing the prose, but he has different things that he does that I that I did try to give an homage to. So um, very often he will write dueling storylines and I'll alternate chapters. I did that. That was a no brainer, right? You don't have to be, you don't, you don't have to try to figure out how to write just like Burroughs in order to do that. Right. So alternating storylines. Um, he has other patterns. Uh, I mean, he's a romance writer, right? And he, other, other patterns of taking a person, a character, a fish out of water, dumping that character in a completely new environment. And then, um, introducing that male character to a female heroine and having them go through a series of misunderstandings because of lack of communication and anger and, you know, I hate you. And then at the end of the book, no, I love you. Right. I mean, just, and, and so I, I turned that on its head with my, with the female character being brought into Pellucidar and meeting, uh, and meeting, uh, you know, the caveman, um, but you know, but reversing the genders with, with that, but still playing with that with that Barosian trope. Again, you know, I don't claim any special creativity to that. It's kind of a no brainer to 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 do it. Um, uh, but that that was the kind of Burrow stuff that I wanted to emulate. There were other things that we picked up uh, in terms of extending Tarzan's family tree. Uh, that hadn't necessarily been done too much with Tarzan. We had Korok and Miriam, and then we had a mention of Korok's son um, in Tarzan and the Ant-Man, but that character actually never appeared. It just was mentioned. Um, but, you know, with the John Carter series, we had children and grandchildren. We had Thuvia and, and Lana of Gothel and all of these. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it's very Barosian to say, hey, it's time for the granddaughter, right, to have a story. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so that those were the kinds of things that we were trying to to pick up on. Right. Yeah. So you know, would you continue or are you able to continue the secrets of the nine past this? You know, you've got to 1984. So it's almost like we're, we're paralleling what more Alan Moore, as you mentioned earlier, is doing yeah. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he ended in 2015 or 2016, I think. So, yeah. you know, do you have a plan or did, did Farmer have a plan to go further into the future? I don't know. I don't I don't know that Farmer had a plan. Um, I don't have any indication um, that he had that he had it planned out or mapped out. Now with 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 Chris's um, Kokarsa and Opar and Kor, you know, there were notes there and, and Farmer had a plan and Chris Chris 
I hope we'll be able to find the time to come back to that someday. Um, so that said, you know, it's hard to say if there would be a fifth book um, after the monster on hold, if there, if there were to be a fifth book, um, and I'm just, you know, admit it right here, it would be, unless I find some notes, uh, it would be whole cloth by me wrapping it up in the best way that I think it could be wrapped up, you know, based on what I know about farmer and his books. And, uh, I will say this, I mean, it, this is a doc Caliban book. I don't, I'm, like I said, I wasn't going to get into Lord Gruneth really very much at all in this book. So we really don't know what he's been doing. And that kind of does cry out for, for a wrap up. Right. I mean, we'll see how sales are. They can flip the covers and, and do that. Like it, like right. they right. you know, I was looking through my notes. Isn't there another um, Secret of the Nine volume coming up uh, in the bundle of books? Yes. Yes. So we're kind of calling that a side story. It's a novella by Frank Schildener. Uh, and it takes place in the 70s. Uh, and it's a it's a new character, but a character who's kind of been inspired by Doc's and Lord Grunneth's rebellion against mm-hmm. the Nine. Right? So you, it's, it's sort of in this world, like, well, look, if two guys decided to rebel you know, maybe they're onto something here. Maybe this isn't so great. Maybe I'll join in. Um, yeah, exactly. And he kind of does it in the, in the vein of a seventies men's adventure. Um, but with lots of callbacks to the thirties pulps, sort of with a, an amalgam type of shadowy pulp hero. Um, you know, those kind of the shadowy vigilantes, the shadow, the spider, the green llama, you know, kind of, kind of those. It's not any one of those, but it's sort of like, well, if there was one of those types of heroes mm-hmm. in the nine, you know, what would he be like in the seventies, and what would he be doing? Yeah. So that, that kind of is my, my big question: is you you have dabbled with so many different heroes that both from Philip Jose Farmer and Burroughs, and out you've done Honey Honey West, you've done the Phantom, yeah. uh, Green Hornet, personal favorite. You know, is there anybody left? that you'd really like to take a crack at? Like, oh, I, I, I want to write the James Bond story or something, you know? <laughs> oh, my, I mean, that would be a dream come true, but that phone call is never coming because Anthony Borowitz uh, is, uh, seems to be writing uh, the, the new James Bonds. <laughs> um, and pretty good, I think, um, taking him back to the 50s. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably not... Uh, Bill Maynard does such a fantastic job writing the Fu Manchu books. Uh, and I don't know if you, if you guys have spoken to him, William Patrick Maynard. Um, and I keep on hoping and waiting that his third Fu Manchu book would come out. I would love to tackle a Romer character. Uh, and I know that, you know, looking back just like, just as with Tarzan, there are some problematic issues going back to Romer and the whole yellow peril and everything. And I think Bill Maynard navigates those beautifully in Fu Manchu, um, in his Fu Manchu books. There's another series character, which was much more minor than Fu Manchu that Romer wrote uh, five books ago about called Sumeru. Uh, And I think, I think an additional, additional Sumeru books would be a ton of fun to write. Um, She's sort of a female mastermind, but it's not, there's, there's no yellow peril trope with it because you really don't even know what her nationality is or what her real origin 
uh, is. Uh, and uh, I would, uh, I, I think that would be a lot of fun to continue that character. It's probably not what you were thinking of when you asked me, like, yeah, when, 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 when write James Bond and. No, you know, no, you that. gave the answer that, I, that I'd, I'd want. Um, you know, but it does spark for me, like, with with that, you've done so many of these characters, and I know, uh, you know, for like Moonstone that did dabble with comics as well. Yeah. Like that's where it is. We talked to Christopher Sakara a few months ago in Australia, and I think you know Chris. Yeah, um, I know of him. Yeah, yeah, and he's doing. Uh, he's got Fu Manchu comics, you know. So, so have you thought about going into into that? Where I think there's a little more flexibility. They're not canon but you know <laughs> but like dynamite's got a lot of other people writing james bond yeah yeah um you know i haven't i have not written a comic script uh and so that would be a learning curve for me for sure um i'd love to do it but to be to be honest with you if i were to do a comic i would love to figure out how to do uh some kind of farmer adaptation into comics or, or I'd love to do, you know, to participate in what American mythology is doing with their with their Burroughs comics and, and be a part of that. And you know, knock on wood, that might happen. It's you know, I got to finish this Monster on Hold book first. But um, we've been talking about some things like that. And there is a final coming up uh, virtual, yes. Yes. Uh, so online and and kudos for doing that as well, keeping Farmer alive and. Rick t just messaged me quietly, like, could there be a new Riverworld book? Maybe Shadow Men on Riverworld? <laughs> not the way he'd say it, but, you know, I, okay. But I, I'm more pleading and naked about that pleading. So, you know, are there things like that that could come forth? But let's talk about PharmaCon because sure. it, it, it just just a bit. It's online. Yes. It's um, all things Farmer, and I think he, he is an author who has passed from fashion to some extent. I obsessively yeah. check every bookstore I go into uh, to find like is because I'd love uh, to say like uh, to your scattered bodies go to get river world or uh, uh, living to my son. You know, he really dig those books and you, and he's nowhere to be found at a Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Yeah. In, 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 in bookstores that are only selling new books, you're, you're right. Um, uh, He's getting harder and harder to find bookstores out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are still ebooks too, and I think you know the the River World ebooks are still available. World of Tears, Day World series uh, is out an ebook, um, and uh, you know, I mean, it, it, if I had my druthers and my wish, they would be both. You know, there would be mm -hmm. it, it would still be in print. Um, as well as it hasn't been that long. I mean, it was uh, probably 10 years or slightly less that the latest editions of the Riverworld books came out with the second remake Riverworld movie made for TV or made for streaming movie. No, no, that, uh, I know, right? that, that, that didn't actually happen. It, it's like that Flash Gordon series. No, it doesn't really we'll happen. Always the have the book. We'll always have the books. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I mean, I, I, it, it is. It's it's disheartening to go in and not find new you know farmers still on a new bookstore shelves. Um, when those when those last editions came out ten years ago, I bought them all for my son who read them. Yeah, yeah, I got them all too. Um, you know, I got I, I get every edition that I possibly can to try to support it. Um, 
Nope. All, the good, for all the good it does. <laughs> okay, so, so when is FarmerCon? Let's let's give a little focus there to just kind of say if people sure. are interested and they're just discovering all this world and it's a fantastic world. You know, when is it? Where do they go? Absolutely. So um, FarmerCon uh, is in different times is usually held in conjunction with Pulp Fest which uh, is in Pennsylvania, usually in the August timeframe. Due to COVID, we're, we're not, unfortunately, FarmerCon is not participating in person with Pulp Fest this year. So uh, our, our virtual FarmerCon will be online and it will probably be in October, uh, probably in the first half of October, the way we did it last year, uh, which we did for the first time virtually, was we had uh, on our YouTube channel, we would upload some content, uh, like some book readings and some other uh, video pieces throughout the day. And then in the evening, we would have a, a giant live Zoom with a lot of fans. Uh, and we'll probably duplicate something like that uh, this year. So the Zoom is more of just a cocktail hour, like get a glass of wine or your your, your favorite beverage or, you know, if you're careful, you're we have discovered that our personal bartenders have very yeah. heavy hands. So, uh, <laughs> um, and so that, that just goes on for hours that went on for hours. Uh, and that was great. Uh, and we also discussed like, Hey, did you see the reading today? Or, you know, we'll do, we'll have a panel, like we'll record a panel about the new books coming out and things like that as well. Um, and throw those up on the YouTube channel. It's pretty informal, um, in that regard. Uh, in terms, um, we do try to, you know, just manage the invitation so it doesn't get too big. Um, or I don't, I don't want to say that because I don't want to feel like, you know, we're excluding, but it's, it's also hard to manage a giant zoom call with, with tens or hundreds, hundreds of people. So, um, people who are watching this can message me on Facebook or they can message Michael Croteau, um, C R O. T E A U Croto or Paul Spiteri S P I T E R I Spiteri on Facebook, um, and uh, you can also go to our Meteor House page uh, on Facebook. That's a good way to get a message to us and ask for an invitation into right. uh, the Virtual PharmaCon Meteor House on Facebook. Great, and once again, pre-order all the monster on hold at meteorhousepress.com, and there's more information on PharmaCon there as well. I just saw that yep. that go up. Yep. So, uh, thank you, Wynn. Uh, Wynn Scott Eckert, Tarzan Battle for Pellucidar, available right now from eggerricebros.com. It's been a pleasure, guys. Um, Meteor House Press for the new books. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for staying on. This is the bonus audio-only section because we had such a good time talking with Wynn Scott Eckert. Uh, it went long, and we wanted to to let that go, but we still want to talk a little bit about comics this week. So here we are with Pick of the Week. Rick, what is your Pick of the Week for comics? Well, I have to say it was a tough week to pick because there were three real strong candidates, but I just chose one, um, and that is uh, it's another, another series that we're going to be exposed to in that uh, – the, the way they write sweeping, sweeping series today, these days going across multiple books. But luckily, it's a universe where I buy all the books that they're going to go through with some mild, mild exceptions. And that is uh, Star Wars, 
War of the Bounty Hunters. Oh, um, yes. The Prelude issue came out today. Um, it's uh, written, uh, I think it's Charles Soule. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and is it Luke Ross? I think so. Oh, McNiven writes, uh, is the penciler on this, this issue. Steve McNiven. Um, and so basically this, this is the kind of story I really like in these, uh, these non-movie story adaptations. It's a patched in story that happens after Boba Fett takes off with Han Solo's body in carbonite. And then something goes wrong that we had no clue of in the movies, which is the, uh, the lead into the war of the bounty hunters. Um, this, uh, just talking about this one issue, which is the alpha it's, it's not numbered. It's alpha. No, because numbering is too, uh, mundane. Yeah. Know, for these it's, kinds of events. It's, it's passe. Um, the art in this is splendid. This is right up with the best of the art in this series so far. And I have to say, the Star Wars books in general are are double A style uh, comics with, with they're gorgeous, great art overall. There there's some exceptions, of course, but you can usually pick up a Marvel uh, Marvel Star Wars book and expect a super quality visual uh, experience. And this one is definitely that. Very inventive uh, new aliens. Um, the the main character in this is uh, Boba Fett, uh, and he has to deal. He's he's. It's another one. The criminals can never get anything right the first time, and so he has a fairly simple plot to solve his problem, which of course goes awry and is going to lead into the events in the rest of the books. And I, when I say the rest of the books, I'm talking about all of the Star Wars books that Marvel puts out. So we've got Star Wars. We've got Darth Vader, Doctor Aphra, um, and uh, going going out through this upcoming October. Now there are a number of single issues in here. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be picking those up because I kind of have the feeling that I'm going to get enough story out of um, what looks to be like I don't know, 25 books otherwise. So. But you've got one shots with each of the bounty hunters that we know of and love from the uh, Star Wars universe. So you've got Forlom and Zuckus. We got Bosch, IG88, who we've uh, we've seen now in Mandalorian as well. That no, that wasn't 88. He had a different number. Oh, it was a different. It was an, another IG model. Yes. Um. And uh, and then there is a there is a War of the Bounty Hunters book that goes for five issues that I will probably pick up as well. Um, but uh, the, you've got some of these are, are the the great artists that are currently on. Darth Vader is uh, uh, Greg Pak, and you've got Ethan Sachs for Bounty Hunters uh, number twelve. Bounty Hunters is already a running series if you're not picking that up. Um, but very uh, very happy with this book. Um, I, I'm I'm. I'm borderline excited about it, which which for I have been avoiding multi-book crossovers for quite a while, uh, and this one, luckily, most of this is stuff I'm going to buy anyway, just to keep my run on these titles going. Um, but I'm actually thinking I'll pick up some of the ancillary stuff too. So that's well, I I think it's excellent timing. You said this going through till October. So what you're really telling me is that somehow. In the Disney uh, cross promotion, 
that they've managed. They're going to manage to have this major Boba Fett focused uh, series end right before Disney Plus starts the book of Boba Fett. Yeah. So, hmm. And I would think it's kind of kind of roll over because I think the funny thing is I see all this chatter online about. Uh, for people that did not understand how great Boba Fett was uh, until the Mandalorian brought him back and made him, you know, because I can remember sitting on the couch going, yes, that's why, I, that's the Boba Fett I thought he was going to be yeah. in the movies. Yeah. You know? <laughs> now, is it, is it not to, not to split, um, split hairs like we do on uh, whether or not there is an article in the, the Batman or Batman, uh, but is it, is it the book of Boba Fett or is it the book of Fett? I actually don't remember. So I, I was going to say the book of Fett because I think it flows better, but I'm not so. sure that's, that's what it is. Because, yeah. uh, you know, honestly, there's not a lot of that, but I, I appreciate the call-out because I think the book of Fett would be a better title. doesn't mean that that's what it is. But I think yeah. I, you may be right. I just, you know, I keep saying I'm going to go back and rewatch certain things like WandaVision and I'm going to rewatch Mandalorian and, you know what, no, more new stuff. And more old stuff I've never seen keeps oh, yeah. coming up, you know. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I my my fandom ain't what it used to be. You know, it's funny that we were, of course, talking with Win Scott Eckert. When you say yes, in the seventies, that was that it was easy to reread all those things and to get them stuck in your head and and know them, you know, because um, I was a kid and nobody <laughs> nobody <laughs> bothered me. Go read in the corner, you know. <laughs> they liked it when you were quiet reading in the corner. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they did, yeah. Yeah, so uh, my choice this week is is very outside the box, I think. It's from a, uh, I think this publisher's been around for a year or two. I don't know, just a little bit over a year because I know it launched right as the pandemic hit, which is AWA Publishing. And uh, this is a, a book uh, from the their Upshot imprint, and uh, it's a little off the beaten path, and I just, I don't know, something about the cover left out of me, so I picked it up, and it's Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal, and it's by Garth Ennis and Goran Suzuka, with, uh, I think, colors by Miroslav Murva. And um, it's it's interesting. Garth Ennis, I kind of go hot and cold on. Um, but I, when I think back, is like I did love Hitman. I loved Preacher. And this is Axel Alonso is the editor, and that's the guy who brought uh, Garth Ennis in for Preacher or accepted Preacher. Um, and, you know, I did an interesting Punisher run. So this is about a, I, I want to say young blonde woman, but she may not actually be young because there's a lot of mysteries set up in this first issue. But it's really just a fun book about a, a woman who is, she goes jumping around time, uh, she pulling time heists, stealing jewelry from great, uh, you know, riches from great moments in history where, if she times it right, no pun intended, uh, no one will notice that the that they're gone. So, uh, and then she has a headquarters out outside of time, and she's being hunted by uh, by another uh, by some kind of time cop. And the details are a little hazy at this point because it's an eight issue miniseries. But it was just it was a blast. It was fun. It says it's for mature audiences, and I would agree with that. There's some sexuality, but not a whole lot. You know, it's just kind of the implication. But again, what do you, else would you expect from the guy who gave us Preacher with Steve Dillon? And I do think that Goran Suzuka, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but uh, so I apologize if, if someone wants to let me know. Um, 
that uh, his art reminds me of of Steve Dillon. It's not one for one. It's just you know it has that kind of there's a, there's a, a strange playfulness to it that even as when Dylan was doing the most violent of, of characters like the Punisher, it it was still kind of playful. You were seeing a comic, you were you were getting uh, drawn in, and uh, so this was a complete surprise. I was not you know not expecting it to find it at the comic shop. Uh, I was just there to make sure I got my latest issue of Immortal Hulk. And I picked this up and read it and absolutely fell in love with it. So that's Marjorie Finnegan. That's Marjorie with a J. Uh, Temporal Criminal, number one of eight, from AWA Press. So those are our picks of the week. Thanks for sticking around with us for this little bonus section. And, Rick, we have a a chance to redeem ourselves. We can do our tagline audio. (laughs) Use Use your powers powers for good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com.